If you're able, would you remain standing and turn to 1 John chapter 5? We're going to read verses 6 through 13. I know that uh, often the best plans of mice and men don't come to fruition, but the plan is after today, those two more sermons on 1 John. Um, so that's the, the plan. 1 John chapter 5, starting in verse 6. This is the word of our Lord. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not only by water, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who bears witness, because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the the Word, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one. And there are three that bear witness on earth, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three agree as one. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater, for this is the witness of God, which He has testified of His Son. He who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. He who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed the testimony that God has given of his Son. And this is a testimony that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. These things I have written to you, who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. This is the word of our Lord. In the prayer I'm going to say now for the preaching of the word, I'm also going to pray for Trent Bay. I forgot to do that during the morning. Trent is Mike and Anita's oldest son, right? Youngest son, Carson's older, um, and he's donating his kidney to his father-in-law. And that's why the need is there to help take care of him. So let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word and we pray to speak to us through it today. Set our eyes on heaven. We also pray for Trent and his father-in-law as they uh, go through this uh, surgery. Uh, We pray that uh, you bless it. We pray there'll be no rejection and that you heal both Trent and his father-in-law for asking Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Before we get into what the text means and how it it applies to us, I want you to notice that what I read in the New King James Version of the Bible is different than what you have if you're reading from the English Standard Version, the SV, or the New International Version, the NIV, or the New American Standard Bible, the NASB, or virtually any wide, uh, um, widespread or um, modern translations. There's a difference there, and the difference is in verse 7. The verse 7 that I read says, For there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. The reason so for the difference is that the sentence about the three witnesses in heaven is a late addition to the text and should not be here. Now, what it says is 100% absolute truth. The rest of the scriptures teach that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit testify to whom the Son is. So that's 100% true. So we could preach through it, and because that's what the Bible teaches, 
anyway. And, and another thing is that the meaning of the passage, with it or without it, doesn't change. The passage stays the same whether we include the three witnesses in heaven in our understanding of it or not. And I'm more than happy to talk about it with you over lunch, uh, uh, at lunchtime, if you have questions about what I'm saying concerning uh, verse 7. This passage as a whole teaches that the claim that Jesus is the Christ coming the flesh to save all who believe in him is true beyond a shadow of a doubt. The Apostle John is telling us that there is un- the, the, the fact of who Jesus is is undeniable. It cannot be contradicted, it cannot be refuted, it cannot be disproven. Even people, though people try, try to do that. This passage is about witnesses as in a court of law. I like lawyer shows. So now you know I love Hallmark movies, and I like lawyer uh, shows. Both things my wife despises. <laughs> but that's, you know, you've, you've seen and, uh, the, 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 the lawyer shows when they go to, to court and the witness comes and rises, raises his, his or her right hand and swears that all they're going to say is true. That's the context here. John is saying, here, let me parade before you a set of witnesses that tells you that what I'm saying concerning Christ is true. And one of those witnesses is the Father. Another of those witnesses is the Spirit. Another of those witnesses is history. And another of those witnesses is the very Word of God. So you can see that John lined up a series of witnesses that cannot be refuted. That what they say is true. So these witnesses are witnesses whose testimonies cannot, cannot and will not be disproven, discredited, rebutted, or refuted. And to deny that those, these witnesses are true is to call God a liar. Now, through the centuries, mankind has tried to rebut or disprove this, these witnesses, and yet no, no one, absolutely no one, has been successful in doing so. Uh, Voltaire is very famous to have said that by the time his life is over, Christianity, he would have destroyed Christianity. That was his mission in life. Now, Voltaire was the, the, philosoph- the philosophical mind behind the French Revolution in 1789. Uh, God likes irony. Today, Voltaire's house is the headquarters of the French Bible Society. Uh, st- no one, everyone has tried, a lot of people have tried to disprove Christ. No one has been successful. No one. Because it is an impossibility to make God a liar. So let's take a look at these witnesses. The first set of witnesses is verse 6. The, the water and the blood bear witnesses to whom Christ is. Look at very f- the, the first half of verse 6. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ only by water, but by water and blood. Simple, right? Super easy to understand. Let's just move on to the next uh, thing. Now, there, there are three, there, there's countless interpretations of the, the water and the blood, but there's three of them that make more sense. One says that the blood and the water is, a, the water and the blood is a reference to the crucifixion. Remember the scene in the Gospel of John where the soldier, to check to see if Jesus is, is dead, 
thrusts a spear through him without breaking any, any, blood, any, any bones, seems to have reached the heart, and water and blood came out of that wound. So some say, okay, the water blood here is a crucifixion, is a reference to the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a possibility. Another viable option is where people say that water means the birth. You know how fluids comes out when you give birth to a baby. And the cruci- and blood is the crucifixion. It's talking about the entirety of the life of Jesus is a witness to whom he is. The third one, which is the one that I think is the most viable one, is that water here refers to his baptism. And then blood refers to his crucifixion. Now, all these three interpretations are viable because they all refer to the humanity of Christ. This is the, 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 that's the whole point in the, book, the Gospel of John, that Jesus was a real human being with flesh and blood like we are. Remember that that's really what he's dealing with throughout this letter. He's, 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 he's teaching, he's rebuking, he's contradicting the false teachers that taught that Jesus became Christ at his baptism. Remember the scene on baptism where Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist and the Spirit comes above, uh, on him like a dove? The false teachers that were uh, coming to the church in Ephesus where John ministered were saying, see, the man Jesus became the Christ at that point. And then at some point before the crucifixion, the Christ left the man Jesus. It was the man Jesus that died on the cross. But John says that no, both the, the water, his baptism, and the blood, his crucifixion, are witnesses that this is Jesus Christ. Jesus, John is saying that the same Jesus Christ that was baptized was also crucified. This Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man, able to save to the ends of the earth. That's the testimony of the water and the blood, the baptism and the cross. These are false teachers that John is dealing with. We're okay with Jesus being God. They didn't struggle with that. But they struggled with his being fully human because they have been infected with a philosophy that was very prevalent on the first century before Christ and the first century of our era, something called Neoplatonism, that taught that the physical world, the material world, was bad or at least inferior to the spirit. That being the case, why would the Savior of the world have a material body that is inferior, something that's inferior to everything else? So in their minds, because they had bought into the current philosophy of the, world, of the time, they thought, they thought Christ cannot have had a body. Now, this, I'm going to take, this helps us think about something. Here's our first application. The false teachers arrived at the wrong conclusion about Christ because they judged the scriptures in light of worldly philosophy. They put the glasses of Neoplatonism, the the prevailing philosophy of the time, and then with those glasses decided to make sense of the scriptures. They did it backward, didn't they? The scriptures are the lenses through which we interpret everything else. We look at life through the scriptures. We let scriptures speak and then we interpret everything else in life. The scriptures interpret the world, not the other way around. In Psalm 36, I have that on 
right in front of my desk where my computer goes, where the screen is, so I can look at it as I'm studying and preparing sermons. Psalm 36, 9 says this. It says, For with you is the fountain of life. And then it says, In your light we see light. It is in the light of God, in the light of the scriptures, as Psalm 119 calls it, that we see light. The more that we are in the scriptures, the more we see light. The, the, the scriptures are that lamp unto our path. The scriptures are that light unto our feet that enables us to see everything as they are. And when we change that order, we end up with logically absurd ideas like the idea that a man is a woman and a woman is a man. That is what happens when you put the lenses of current philosophical ideas and then look at the Bible through them instead of doing the opposite, looking at the world through the lens of the scriptures. The second application that comes, and we're not at the end yet, don't get all excited, oh, he's in the application, means that we're done. <laughs> don't get so excited yet, though. Darren brought 55 pounds of smoked brisket for lunch. So we could be done now and just go to lunch. <laughs> well, the second application that we see here is this. The physical is not less important or inferior than the spiritual. That's a mistake that the false teachers have made, that somehow the physical world, the material, world, is less important than the spiritual. And I think we get in that trap sometimes. I think that spiritual thoughts and whatever is what really is important the, point is, the problem is that we will live forever in our physical bodies, and that's going to be glorious. Salvation is not completed till our physical bodies are resurrected, and our, our souls and bodies are sinlessly united to one another, and forever worship Christ in the body. Uh, that's how um, John describes the love of God for us in chapter 3, the beginning there, verses 1 and 2. It says, uh, Behold what men of love... Behold what men of love the Father has given unto us, that we shall be called children or sons of children of God. And then it says, We will see Christ as He is, for we shall be like Him. That's how we enjoy God's love. We are not made to be floaty spirits in heaven. We're made to be body and soul. As a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul in, in, 1 Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians 5 says that being in the intermediate state in heaven now, is only desirable because there is an end to it. Because we are made to enjoy God in f body and spirit. So let's not make the mistake that somehow the spiritual is more important than the material or that we have to deny one in favor or the other. Uh, the Apostle Paul tells Timothy, hey, go talk to the rich people in the church. Tell them that all things are given to them for us to richly enjoy. Money, possessions are not there to be hoarded, but to be enjoyed for the glory of God. So the Lord has given us all things for us to enjoy for His glory. And Jesus Christ came in the flesh in order to redeem us, both body and soul. I, do you understand that? The Christ did not just come to redeem our souls. He came to redeem our bodies and our souls because that's who we are. We're not a soul that has a body put on it. We're not a body that contains a soul. We are body and soul. And we, when we miss that, that's when we end up with some idiotic transgender philosophy. That somehow who you are is divorced from 
your body. That's not what God teaches in his word. So we see that the son of God, who is the object of the believer's faith in verse 5, came in the flesh. History attests to that the water and the blood, his baptism and his crucifixion. What is that? That's history. History attests to the fact that he is the Christ. Think of the significance of, of this enfleshment of the reality of the body of Christ to the Lord's Supper. The physical nature of the sacrament was given to us because the Lord of the sacrament exists in the flesh. Jesus is still the embodied Son of God in heaven now. Our Savior exists in the flesh. One of the most comforting parts of, of, of Reformation theology comes from the Heidelberg Catechism, question 75, where he addresses the Lord's Supper. There the Catechism asks, how does the Lord's Supper signify and seal to you that you share in Christ's once, one sacrifice on the cross and in all his gifts? The answer is this, in this way. Christ has commanded me and all believers to eat of his, this broken bread and drink of this cup in remembrance of him. With this command, he gave these promises. First, as surely as I see with my eyes the bread of the Lord broken for me and the cup given to me, so surely was his blood, his body offered for me and his blood poured out for me on the cross. As today, as we come to the table, as I break the bread in front of you, your minds should go straight to Calvary where a real Savior with a real body had his body broken for you. And when we present the cup, and this is Christ's blood shed for you, your mind goes to that bloody Savior where, who, bleed, who bled real blood for the sake of your sins. The catechism continues. Second, as surely as I receive from the hand of the minister and taste with my mouth the bread and the cup of the Lord... As sure signs of Christ's body and blood, so surely does he himself nourish and refresh my soul to everlasting life with his crucified body and shed blood. Do you see the connection there of the sacrament and the actual person? That if he didn't have a body, this would be meaningless? That, that would do nothing for us? But because he indeed is a savior like we, human like we are, still remains. He, he is truly crucified physically. He truly bled physically that then we're ministered by him in the Lord's table. So you have the witness of the water and the blood, but those are not the only witnesses. We also have the Holy Spirit who bears witness to Jesus Christ come in the flesh. Look at the second half of verse 6. And it is the Spirit who bears witness because the Spirit is truth. We know that Christ is exactly who he says he is because the Spirit testifies to us concerning Christ, just like he said he would. Remember in the upper room, as Jesus is saying goodbye to his apostles in chapter, in Jesus happens in chapter 15, he says, a helper is coming, and he's going to lead you into all truth concerning me. He's going to reveal who I am to you. So the Spirit bears witness to your spirit in knowing that Christ is exactly who he says he is. And to the inward witness of the Spirit, we add the outward witness of the Scriptures. Actually, the two cannot be separated. The Spirit witnesses through the Word. If you want to know what the Spirit is saying, you read the Word and you meditate on the Word. And the Spirit uses that Word. He wills the Word 
to help us see Christ. And the point that John makes is that the witnesses to whom Christ is are overwhelming. Look at verse 8. And there are three that bear witness on earth, the spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three agree as one. History, that's the water and the blood, the spirit, and the scriptures all agree that Jesus is the Christ, the only Savior of the world, fully God, fully man, absolutely capable to save anyone who believes in him. That's who Jesus is. John the Baptist accepted this witness in the Gospel of John, chapter 1. By the way, when the Gospel of John talks, used the word John, it's not referring to the apostle, it's always referring to John the Baptist. So in chapter 1, the apostle says this, John bore witness, that is John the Baptist, bore witness saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon him. I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. John the Baptist accepted that witness of the Spirit. The overwhelming witness of history the Word, and Spirit. Paul accepted that witness. Remember in 2 Timothy where it says, I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed to him until, uh, until that day. What is it that he he's persuaded? What is it that he's committing to Christ? He describes that Christ as a Savior of mankind. That's what allows him to suffer. That's what he believes, and that's what he's persuaded of, because the witness is overwhelming. Countless believers accepted this witness. In, the, in chapter 11, remember Hebrews 11, where the Holy Spirit, through that preacher, outlet, lists a bunch of heroes of the faith. They have Enoch, and Abraham, and Moses, and David, and Isaiah, and Samson. And then, because you know, you're going to run, a parchment, run out of papyrus here, he includes everybody else. In verse 11, in chapter 11, verses 39 and 40, he says, All these, all these, all that have gone before, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. God having God have provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. All these people accepted the witness of the Spirit, the Word, and history, even though they did not see the fulfillment of the promises. Because the promises were waiting for you and for me in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. John the Baptist saw the witness and said, there's no way to deny that. The Apostle Paul, the persecutor of God's church, saw the witness and was persuaded. All the saints in Hebrews saw the witness and were willing to die for the witness. You have accepted the witness. You who are in Christ have also accepted the witness and see that Jesus Christ is God the Son in the flesh, the Savior of the world. And truthfully, it takes a debased mind, a debased and rebellious mind, in order to reject this witness. In, in the way that you remember Psalm 14 and Psalm 53, they're the same psalm. They are the ones that begin, and the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. It's interesting that the way that the, the author, the Holy Spirit, chose to write that sentence is using a continuing verb, verb. 
The idea is that the fool continues to say in his heart, there is no God. The picture is this person trying to deny that God is, but in order to be able to suppress that, because it just springs up all the time, there's no way to deny it. He keeps saying, there is no God, there is no God, there is no God, there is no God. Because that's the only way to deny. Because if he stops in any moment to say that, it just springs up the reality of God. Romans 1, 8, 28 says, Even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God came over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. The word debased here is often translated disqualified mind. God gave them over because of their own sins to a disqualified mind, a mind that's not willing to acknowledge God as God, even though every once in a while that sprouts out in, um, in, in an idea that the common grace of God allows them to have. This is the bottom line, guys. To say that Jesus is not who he says he is, is to God to call God a liar. Look at verses 9 and 10. If we receive the witness of man, the witness of God is greater, for this is the witness of God which he has testified of his Son. He who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. He who does not believe God has made him a liar because he does not believe the testimony of God that God has given to his son. God here is God the Father because he's referred to Jesus as the Lord. That's common in the New Testament. So God the Father has revealed the Son. And what God says is of greater value, worth, weight, power than what man says. And yet, we're, we're, as, as the verse says, we are quick to believe in man. And yet the testimony, the witness of God is greater than the testimony, the witness of man. Not only the Holy Spirit bears witness to the Son, but also the Father. In at least two occasions, the Father directly testified to the Son. Remember his baptism? The Holy Spirit comes upon the Son, and the Father says, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Remember the transfiguration? Moses and Elijah appear next to Jesus, and Peter, as Peter does... You know, the size 11 mouth. He says, uh, Lord, let's, let's build a booth here for Elijah, a tabernacle for Elijah, a tabernacle for Moses, and a tabernacle for you. And then what, ha- what happens? Moses and Elijah are gone. And the voice from the father says, this is my beloved son. Not Moses, not Elijah. This is my beloved son in whom I will please hear him. Worship him. Not Elijah and not Moses. The scriptures in general are the witness of the Father to the Son. So the one who looks at the scriptures and says that Jesus is not whom he says he is, is a liar. There's no other term for it. He's a liar. Because the scriptures, John says, are clear about who Jesus is. Because all things testify to the person of Christ. Look at verses 11 and 12. And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. All Scripture, all history, the Spirit, the Father are all witnesses to this truth. God has given us eternal life, and that life is in His Son. Brothers and sisters, God has given us eternal life. Life of the age to come. That's what literally eternal means. Life of the ages. Life of the resurrection age. All kinds of issues, brothers and sisters, come up 
when we forget that this life is not the ultimate life. That God has not promised our best life now. If this is your best life, it means you're going to hell. If this is as good as it gets, it means that you're expecting to go to hell. Because the life that God gives us is the eternal life. The life to come. The resurrection life. And our eyes must be upon that. To have the Son is to have life. Some of you may be thinking, you know, I don't want to have anything to do with Jesus. I want to live my life. I want to control my life. It's my life. I don't need some dead in the sky telling me what to do, as somebody told me last week. The problem with that is that this is not life. Life, your life, real life, doesn't start to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you're able to say with Paul in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Brothers and sisters, to not have the Son is to be condemned already. It is not something that will happen in the future. Jesus says in John 3, He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. If you're not embracing Christ, run to him. Don't think about it. Don't wait till later. Run to him. Because as you stand, you stand condemned in the sight of the God who is true. Now, why did John write this? He wrote it for the comfort and the assurance of God's people. Look at verse 13. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Remember, the Gospel of John is written that you may believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now John follows that up by saying, I'm writing this so that you may know that you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. These things are written for the comfort and the assurance of the believer. John is telling us that the Christian faith is a reasonable faith. The sound mind will understand and accept it. There's no comfort in life apart from Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God himself, come in the flesh. So with the Heidelberg Catechism question, when I ask you, what is your only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by His Holy Spirit, He also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for Him. Believer, what is your only hope in life and death? Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and reigning. Let us pray.
Father, thank you that you are the God who gave us the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray that if there is any here who don't believe in Jesus, that you turn his heart, turn her heart to you. Grant them faith to see the Lord Jesus. And for those of us who are in Christ, even if our faith is feeble, help us to see him more dearly and to love him and to embrace him with every ounce of our being for asking his name. Amen.